Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be here. Um, man, I don't know where to begin. Uh, you're, I met your pastor for the first time, as he said, a couple of, um, a couple of months back at your ordination. When was your ordination, G? August, so it wasn't, wasn't all that long ago. And um, we just kind of hit it off. I mean, I got saved late in life. I did not grow up in church. So I got saved when I was in my 20s. And, uh, you know, so I'm not a professional preacher by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know how to act. You know, preachers have a look about them and act about them. And uh, one thing I noticed about your preacher, I don't know whether he got saved late in life or not, uh, or, or whether he grew up in this or not, but he just seemed so real. He was, he was the real deal. He was genuine. He wasn't trying to put on any airs. He wasn't trying to pretend to be somebody he, he's not. He wasn't trying to, he didn't ask me how many people we run down at our church or, you know, do the comparison game or anything else. So, so, uh, so we just, uh, I just, I just loved them. And, uh, there's only a few of us there. It was brother Bish and, uh, and that was it, I think, right? Pastor Barnes. And, um, but we just, we just had a really good time. And then, you know, we've been in conversation a couple times. He's been inquiring about, um, you know, some students, um, you know, and we do have, uh, the college runs about 100 students, and it's a great college, and um, it's got a, it's got a, uh, uh, the, the spiritual emphasis is, is tremendous there. Uh, what they may lack in whatever, being big and organized and having all the bells and whistles, they, they have in spirit, and I mean, at a chapel service, every student will come forward. Some of them won't wait till the, the invitation to come forward. Some of them come forward during the song service, and, and they'll be praying. They've got tender hearts and, and just, a, just a great group of, of, of young people. And uh, we've had some good ones that have graduated. One of them is Corey that he mentioned. And, uh, you know, I noticed Corey hadn't gone anywhere, and I was wondering where he, what he was going to do. And so I thought Corey would have been a great fit, but... Um, uh, he ended up taking this church in Philly. We have a situation, I don't know if it's the same thing as here, but uh, down by us there are several churches without pastors, that there's maybe just maybe a handful of people there, and, um, you know, uh, there's nobody. And, you know, our church filled the pulpit at, at Brother Wiedemeyer's church when Brother Wiedemeyer was sick and when he died. Uh, we filled the pulpit for his church for probably a year solid. We were sending somebody up there for every service. And then uh, there's another church nearby us, um, uh, Cardiff Baptist Church. We were filling the pulpit for that. And there's two other churches nearby us that don't have pastors. And so, you know, of course, uh, Pastor Clark, Brother Charlie, they run the college. Their first goal is to try to get these South Jersey churches filled up with, with pastors. Um, but, uh, but anyway, but it's a great school, and I'm not... Uh, you know, I'm not an evangelist for the college. I teach there. I've been teaching there since the School of the Scriptures. They used to have a Bible institute there. As a matter of fact, I was a student at the School of the Scriptures going back probably 20 years, more than that, probably 25 years ago. And for the past 18 years, I've been teaching first at their Bible institute and then uh, when they, they developed it into a full-blown college. And so uh, I love to teach. That's my thing. I'm not really a great preacher. You're going to find that out here in just a minute. Uh, I'm more of a teacher than a preacher, and I don't really apologize for that. That's just who I am. I used to try to be somebody else, but that wouldn't be real, so I just decided to be me, and um, so anyway. Anyway, my wife's in the back somewhere. Uh, would you stand up for us? I've always wanted to do that to my wife, make her stand up. I appreciate my wife uh, being willing uh, to come up. It's, you know, it's a long ride. We had to leave right after church, and, and it was raining, and there's all kinds of things that my wife doesn't like to do. She doesn't like to drive. She really doesn't like to drive in the rain. And she doesn't like to cross bridges, all of which we had to do uh, to get here. But she was, a, she was a trooper, and we're here. And praise the Lord, we're glad we're here. And I can't tell you what a, what a blessing it is to see Brother Wiedemeyer. And, um, and I remember that you were here, uh, but I forgot about it somewhere along the way. And then when he told me you were back there, I just... His, his brother, Rick, was by far the greatest influence in my life. Uh, I, got saved, um, I got saved through Christian radio. I was a, a driver, a salesman. And uh, I got saved through Christian radio, and uh, I attended uh, 
Ocean County Baptist Temple it was back in those days. I think it still is Ocean County Baptist Temple, but uh, he was the youth pastor there. And they had a pastor. The pastor was a good guy and everything, but uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was probably about this size church, and it was probably pretty full. They, they ran probably close to three, 400 on Sunday mornings. They had two services. Um, but they, uh, the pastor really, I mean, you know, just whatever. It was a big church. I was a young guy. I really didn't look like much. I had long hair and, and, and everything else. I, I probably had a pack of cigarettes rolled up in my, my, my T-shirt, you know, so I really didn't look like somebody that was worth discipling. But Pastor Wiedemeyer took an interest in me. And Pastor Wiedemeyer was the guy. He ended up, um, we, we lived in South Toms River right around the corner from where Pastor Wiedemeyer lived. And uh, I, I just, I'll just say this about Pastor Wiedemeyer. And I imagine it's the case with your pastor as well. Um, there, there wasn't ever a time that he was not available. Like if I ever needed him, he was there. If I needed him for a long period of time, he, as a matter of fact, if I broke down in Texas and called him, he would he would drive down immediately to come help me get my car going again and get me fixed up. That's just the kind of guy he was. Now he was he drove me out of my mind a lot of times. Uh, we got to working together. I was his youth pastor, and he was the pastor. We used to take a lot of trips together. We used to go up to Hartford, Connecticut all the time for soul winning conferences up here. I don't know how far Hartford is. I'm assuming it's close to New Hartford, but I could be wrong about that. It was East Hartford, actually, we went for conferences years ago. And we used to take these trips, and he would just, you know, all of a sudden want to take a trip. And here's the thing about Brother Wiedemeyer. How long does it take to get from South Toms River to East Hartford? It's, what, three and a half, four hours? And even with Brother Wiedemeyer driving, maybe three hours, three and a half hours, but he, the conference would start at 7 o'clock. He wouldn't want to leave until, you know, well, he would plan on leaving at 3.30. And he'd be working on a car or doing something. And we wouldn't end up leaving till about 5.15. And so, and he'd be scrambling down the road. And he'd always say this. He said, this is it. He said, I'm a new man. I'll, I'll never be late again. <laughs> and this went on so many times over and over and over again in our lives. Uh, I remember one time we were in Jacksonville, Florida, where we went to college, and we were coming, um, we were supposed to pick up Kim's mom, she lived in Florida, and we were supposed to pick her up at, uh, like, early in the morning, and we were going to drive back to New Jersey, and um, we were supposed to leave at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we're at the hotel, 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm packed up, I got everything in, in the car, and I come back in, brother, Wiedemeyer's still sleeping, and then after a while, he's popping pistachios in his underwear, looking at the auto shopper. And he's just, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a scheduled guy. I'm a, you know, I'm the exact opposite. Uh, I do not have the, la you, you ask me if I have time and I'll probably tell you no. But, but he wasn't that way. And he was just, uh, so anyway, we don't end up leaving there until about noontime. We end up going to lunch someplace. We run into some people he knows from Bible College, we're there for several hours, and we end up not getting down to South Florida where we had to pick up his mom till about six or seven o'clock at night, and then we still gotta drive back to New Jersey. But that's just the way Brother Wiedemeyer was. He was never in a hurry, and uh, he, just, he, he just, but he, I, nobody influenced me more in the Christian walk than Brother Wiedemeyer, and of course, uh, his wife Kim, we're still dear friends. You know, it's just great. Um, it's great, just great to be around. There's good folks. And it's good to see G. Uh, G grew up in our church. He, was, uh, he wasn't in diapers, but he was probably around five or six years old, I would imagine. When I got there, he was there before me, him and his dad. His dad is my best friend in the world. And, uh, boy, I went through a lot of rough times, you know, in the ministry. You go through some tough times. You go through some, some difficult valleys and situations and heartbreaks. And, uh, and his dad was with me every step of the way. And uh, little G went off to college. I shouldn't really call him little G, but... Uh, he went off to college, uh, what, about eight years ago now, and went to West Coast, and then he stayed there for his master's degree, and I always kind of hoped he'd come back to New Jersey. Uh, but uh, anyway, God had different plans, and so he's here, and so we praise the Lord for him. All right, I'm, I'm taking all this time because I'm debating about what I'm going to preach, and I'm, I'm tossed between two messages, and I think I'm going to end up in, in the book of Joshua. Let's go to Joshua. Actually, the two messages I want to preach are, are really identical messages. They're, they're different circumstances, but really the same thing happens in both cases. 
Um, the one message I preached at my church this morning, and I was, I was taken uh, by how similar it was to this message in Joshua chapter 7 that I wanted to preach for you guys tonight. And you're probably, most of you, familiar with the book of Joshua. You know that, um, you know, they had wandered the wilderness. They were delivered from Egypt. They wandered the wilderness uh, for uh, 40 years. You know, they had to get some of the negativity purged out. Um, you know, they uh, could have gone into the land literally less than two years from when they were released from Egypt. But uh, they, they, were, they were negative. They didn't believe God could. And, you know, the story of the spies, the spies came back with an evil report, all except for Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb said, let's go in at once because God is well able to deliver them into our hands. But they were afraid. And, um, and so they end up wandering the wilderness, but they come to the end of their journey in the wilderness. And finally, under the leadership now of Joshua rather than Moses, because Moses um, was not able to bring him into the land. He was uh, actually killed by God. Uh, God had took him uh, just before they crossed over. And so they cross over into Canaan from the, west, from the, from the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they cross over, they, they go in, and the first city that, that they, ha- they come against is Jericho. And, and again, this is familiar turf, you're familiar with these stories and in Jericho, they really didn't have to do anything. It was just a miraculous victory. You know, what was it? God told them, you got to march around the city for six days, once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, you got to march around the city seven times. And then, you know, the trumpet's going to sound and you're going to shout and the walls of the city are going to fall down flat. The walls of the city fall down flat and they end up the citizens of Jericho end up killing each other and everything else. And there's this just great victory that the people of Israel really didn't have to do anything in order to achieve. God just brought the victory. And really the only people that survived that, the city of Jericho, were Rahab and her family. And that was all, you know, pre-set up because she helped the spies. And, and, uh, and so, but anyway, it's just, it's just a picture of what the Christian life can be when we're depending on God we're doing things his way, and God just, he just paves the way for us. He just, I'm not going to say life is always going to be easy, but the victories are going to come, and the victories are all going to be given by God. And so when we get to Joshua chapter 7, um, we see that there's problems. We have really, they had the great victory at Jericho, and then they're about ready to go into a city called Ai. And Ai is just a little city. Jericho was a much larger, much more fortified city. And um, Ai was going to be just really a breeze. They should have been able to just plow right through it. But they end up uh, at first uh, losing a, a battle. And 36 Israelites, 36 of the soldiers from Israel die in that battle. And it's just, it's just unnecessary. It didn't have to happen. And so 36 Israelites lose their lives at this battle of Ai. God's army, who had just, I mean, gotten the credit. They didn't do it, but they got the credit for destroying this mighty city of Jericho. Not to mention the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and all of the other ites that were on the other side of the Jordan that they really didn't have a beef with. They were just going to pass through their land, but they opposed them as they were passing through the land, and Israel ended up entering into those battles. They didn't want to initially. God told them about the Moabites. He said, look, uh, that land belongs to them. You can't have that land, but they fought against. And then you got the Edomites. That's Esau's land. God said, you can't have it, but they fought against them, and they ended up fighting and fighting and fighting, and they ended up taking a lot of land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. When they cross over, they conquer Jericho, this big city, and, and, and then 36 Israelites lose their lives at this very, very small battle um, in Ai. And the, the army of Israel, Israel is running with their tails between their legs. In Ai, it's a much smaller, it's a much weaker place when compared with Jericho. Israel should have easily won the battle, but instead they suffer a crushing defeat. Now, most of you are familiar with, or many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of Ai. And if I were to ask you why? they were defeated in that battle, you would probably give me one answer. And that one answer is a good answer, and it certainly is a part 
of the reason why they were defeated. But I submit there are two other reasons. And I'm even going to give you a third other reason today that I believe could have been part of it. Um, But uh, let me just say this, though, before we get into the story. They won the great victory. And then just a short time later, they lose a, 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 a terrible battle. Doesn't it seem like it's, it happens often that God's people lose badly right on the heels of a great victory? I think, I think when we have a success, we need to be very, very careful. First of all, we give the glory to God. We don't try to steal any of that credit ourselves. But secondly, we don't get cocky because success breeds cockiness, boastfulness, pride. You know, I remember when I, was, um, when I was at Ocean County Baptist Church, the first ministry I had was Boys Brigade. And the only reason why I got involved with Boys Brigade was because they went camping once a year. And it was for junior age boys, fourth, fifth, sixth grade boys. And they went on a camping trip once a year. And I said, oh, that'd be cool. I'd like to do that. I'd like to go camping with the kids. I'm going to sign up for Boys Brigade. And it was also cool. You got to wear this little green uniform, kind of like a, you know, an army uniform. It said Ranger on there. And I liked the cool little uniform. And I said, all right, this is all right. I'll do this. And so I become a Ranger. And they really don't tell me all that it entails. I just figure I'm going to be, you know, a warm body hall monitor guy standing there kind of watching over a group of fourth, fifth, and sixth grade boys. And then I'm going to get to go camping with them once a year and maybe go on a hike during the rest of the year or something, you know, something easy like that. So I'm at the first meeting. We're going to have a planning meeting, and it's in the summertime. Boys Brigade ran through the school year. It started in September, and they said to me, okay, um, everybody has to take turns giving a devotion. And I didn't know what a devotion was. I really didn't know what a devotion was. If you, they would have said a sermon or a message, I probably would have figured that out. But I don't get a devotion. What's that? I don't know what that is, but it can't be too bad. And so... I'm figuring out as they're explaining that a devotion is about a 15 to 20 minute message that's, and each one of the rangers has got to take a turn. And I said, whoa, whoa, hold it. I said, forget it. Here's, here's my shirt. You can have it back. I said, I, I'm not, I'm not giving a message. I'm, I'm, I didn't sign up for public speaking. This is not my deal. I'm not going to do this. And so they said, oh, come on, you can do this. And, and, to make it easier for you, you can go last. And so my devotion wasn't going to be to like the second week of December. And then they were going to take a break. Boys Brigade ended around the Christmas holidays, started back up again in the spring. And so I guess the distance kind of made it like if it was far enough off in the future, maybe the rapture would happen and I wouldn't have to do it. But I said, all right, I guess I'll, I'll hang in there and I'll stay and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, I'll do it. And, you know, as time got closer and closer, every time I thought about giving that devotion, every time, without fail, I'd get these butterflies in my stomach. And I want to tell you, you're going to think I'm nuts because it's fourth, fifth, and sixth grade boys, and it wasn't even all that many of them. It was maybe 30 of them total. But as it got closer, I couldn't sleep. I mean, literally, I could not sleep. And from that Sunday straight through until Wednesday, I don't think I got 15, 20 minutes sleep the entire time. I just didn't. I was dreading it. But you know that whole time I wasn't sleeping, you know what I was doing? I was begging God. I said, God, you have got to help me. I mean, God, I need your help. I can't do this. This, this is impossible for me. I, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. God, please do something. And I'm begging God. And sure enough, the time comes, and I got to give the devotion. I get through it. I, I don't know what I preached on. I have no clue if it was a blessing to anybody. But I got to the other side of the thing, and it was over with. You say, well, what's the big deal about that story? Well, I preach four times a week, five times a week. I teach six classes a week. I oftentimes have to go to some place to speak or whatever. Not really to large groups of people. I mean, our church is, you know, in the hundreds. And, you know, church, most of the places I speak are, you know, churches our size. 
And uh, the college maybe would be, you know, solid rock every once in a while. I'll preach there. That's a big crowd. But I'm just saying I speak to a lot more people and mostly all adults nowadays. And I don't pray nearly as hard today as I did when I was 25 years old preaching to fourth, fifth, and sixth grade boys a 15-minute devotion. How many of you remember that first time you sang in the choir or you sang a special or you taught your Sunday school class, or you preached a message. And, and boy, you needed God. And I guarantee you, Israel, going into Jericho, they needed God. But AI, they didn't need God. Yeah, it's just a little place. Man, you saw what happened. You saw what we did back at Jericho. You saw what we did back there, right? No, I didn't see what you did. I saw what God did, but I didn't see what you did. David won the battle against Goliath, and King Saul only to lose later against his own flesh. Hezekiah won a great victory against the army of Assyria, but later lost the battle with his pride. Elijah slew the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove, but then he ran away from a woman, Jezebel. One woman set him to running. And in our story today, we see this defeat at Ai. And I submit there are three. I'll give you a fourth reason. I'm not sure if hermeneutically and homiletically and by proper interpretation it applies to Joshua chapter 7, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Um, reasons why Israel lost the battle against, Jer- against Ai. And, uh, and I believe that these are the same reasons that we lose battles in the Christian life today. And so the first one is this, and it's the blatant one. It's the one everybody knows about. It's, this, it's the sin of sin. It's disobedience. There was sin in the camp. Look back at, uh, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 mostly, but go back to chapter 6 and verse 17, and let's just read a little bit there. It says, And the city shall be accursed, talking about Jericho, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourself from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. Uh, when you take of, the, take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the the, uh, two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath as ye swear unto her. In other words, we made a deal with her. We're going to honor that. Bring her and her family out. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and, and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out her, uh, all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. By the way, Rahab, you know who her son was? You ever hear of a guy named Boaz? You know the story of Ruth? Boaz, he marries Ruth. You see his name there in Matthew when they give the genealogical record of Christ. Rahab's name name is in that. It's just that it's another story, but it's fascinating to me. And they burnt the city, verse 24, with fire. And all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjured them at that time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundations thereof in his firstborn and his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout all the country. And so this was the command and this is what Joshua did. In verse 17 it says, The city shall be accursed. Don't touch of the accursed thing. Now look what happens. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest 
thou thus upon thy face. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their back before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from, you, from among you. Skip down to verse 21. This is what Achan, the guy who took this, this uh, accursed thing, this is what he had to say. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. You know, every time we go through um, periods of time in our church, and we've been through many of them, where just it doesn't seem like things are going right. You know, it just doesn't seem like we're not seeing a number of people saved. We're, we're just, we're having a downtime. One of the first things I always ask is, and I ask my people to ask, is, is there something wrong? Did, is there sin in the camp somewhere? Is there something going on somewhere that maybe I don't know about? But, I mean, there's something that's hindering God from blessing us. So they go through Jericho, great victory. But when they're there in Jericho, this man Achan sees a goodly Babylonian garment. And by the way, that was the accursed thing. It wasn't the gold, the silver, because Israel would have been allowed to take the silver. Achan wouldn't have been allowed to take it, but Israel would have been allowed to take it, and they would have been able to put the gold and the silver in the treasury. But they weren't allowed to touch this Babylonian garment. That was the accursed thing. And Achan saw it, and he took it, and he hid it in his tent. If you will, Achan looked, he lusted, and he took. David did the same thing with Bathsheba. Eve really did the same thing with the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they took it. They lusted after it, and they took it. <clears throat> the Bible says in James chapter 1, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so he says, he's, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. There was something about that garment that just caught Achan's attention. And by the way, can I say this? The devil knows exactly what it is that's going to catch your attention. There are things out there in this world that we live in that are accursed things. They may not be accursed things for everybody, but they're accursed for you. There's something that is forbidden for you to take, to touch, to even lust after. And, um, and God, uh, Satan knows just what it is that you're tempted by. And you need to, by the way, understand your own weaknesses and understand what the will of the Lord is and understand that there are some things that you are attracted to or you have a natural desire for that God would say is an accursed thing in your life. And you need to be intelligent enough to maybe put some fences around you in that area to keep you from being able to take that thing. Uh, some accountability. I'm not saying that you know, we should set up a, you know, a Gestapo that's going to follow you around or any of that, but you should be concerned enough about the will of God in your own life to voluntarily submit to something like that. Stop looking at that which is forbidden. Man, there are some things on the internet, some things on your phone. Dennis Coral, I don't know if you know who Dennis Coral is, but Dennis Coral said something one time when he was preaching. He said, every one of us have an, a triple X-rated bookstore in our pockets. I mean, you used to have to hide behind some sleazy store somewhere, park your car down the street, sneak in the back door, and uh, in order to get the material that you can access on your phone in two seconds. And by the way, your children can access that stuff on your phone in two seconds. And I'm not against phones. I'm not against technology. I got an iPad. I got a, 
I got a MacBook. I've got all kinds of technology. I love technology. I'm not opposed to the internet, but there's a lot of junk on the internet that's bad. Somebody once said the internet's like a city. It's got some nice places that you can visit, but there's a lot of crime-infested areas in there too you got to stay away from. And listen, there are things out there we need to be careful about. Ladies, there are things that tempt you and you need to be careful about. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I look upon a maid? David said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Apparently, that didn't, he didn't follow that principle when he was looking down at Bathsheba, who was bathing next door to his palace. He went on to say, I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. You look at it, you think about it, and then you do it. And by the way, I'm finding out that if you have a lot of time on your hands, you end up thinking about things more. And sometimes your mind becomes a playground of imaginations. And the Bible talks about casting down imaginations, but sometimes we end up thinking about things and plotting things, and, and your mind becomes a, a playground of, of filth sometimes. And, and uh, we need to, the Bible says, think on these things. There are things that we are supposed to, on purpose, think about so that we're not thinking about sinful things. And sin will destroy you. It'll destroy you as a Christian. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy your church. And it'll destroy our nation. The Bible says righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Sin destroyed Sodom. It destroyed the Roman Empire. It someday is going to bring about the destruction of America if we don't repent. And there was sin in the camp. And that little thing, that accursed thing, a Babylonian garment, what's the big deal? It was a big deal to God. By the way, did you ever notice when you study the Bible that God got pretty upset about things that we would think, well, that didn't seem like that was that big of a deal, but God got awfully upset about it. And then there were other things you would think that God would get really upset about. Like, I mean, for instance, David and Bathsheba, and I know there were a lot of consequences with David and Bathsheba, but he could have been put to death for that. And, and Nathan the prophet said, God hath put away thy sin. It's interesting, Saul goes to the witch of Endor, and he doesn't say, I've put away your sin. He said, I've put away you from being king. I'm putting you away. With David, he said, I put away your sin. Seemed like, I mean, we would think that maybe adultery and murder is, is more severe than him consulting this fortune teller. Saul consulting the fortune teller, but God saw it as far more serious. But sin, disobedience, the little things that we think are really not that big. They're not big things. They're little things. And uh, what have you allowed to creep into your What have you uh, hidden underneath your tent? You, got it, you dug a hole in the bottom of your house somewhere and you've got it hidden. Um, disobedience. But then, that wasn't the only sin. These others, I believe, uh, contributed greatly to it as well. Not only were, was there disobedience in Israel, there was also overconfidence. Go back in chapter 7 and look at verse 3. I guess let's back up to verse 1 because we didn't read that in the beginning. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. We saw that for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. One man's sin affected the entire congregation. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon or Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. Notice this, though, in verse 3. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. We don't need a big army just a few thousand people there. We only need a, just a small crew to go in there. That's all we need. Listen, you saw what we did in Jericho, right? I mean, we sent the whole army into Jericho, but I mean, we just, I mean, we didn't lose anybody. We just wiped them all out, but they were overconfident here. And uh, it's a little more subtle of a reason. It's not as blatant as the sin, uh, which it eventually caused. Ai was just a little place. Joshua underestimated the strength of his enemy. Ai was a little stronger than Joshua thought. And can I submit to you, you have some enemies, and your enemies are far stronger than you think they are. 
I personally believe enemy number one. If I was to ask you who enemy number one is, most of you would say Satan. I don't believe he's enemy number one. I believe your flesh is enemy number one. Uh, Paul said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Uh, in Galatians chapter four, this I say then walk, or chapter five, this I say then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're walking in the spirit, led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And your flesh is not saved, and your flesh is enemy number one, and your flesh wants what it wants, and your flesh is at war with the Spirit of God. And um, we need to be careful that we do not underestimate the enemy of our flesh. But then we also have the enemy of the world. Love not the world. How many, how many of you have heard that verse before, love not the world? Only a few of you? Come on, you've all heard that verse before. Be honest. How many of us love the world, though? I mean, be honest. I mean, we love the world's entertainment. We love the world's sports. We love the world's... We love a lot of stuff. Now, we would... I have to say we don't love the world's sin, but there's a lot about this world system that we enjoy. And the world is creeping more and more and more into our homes and into our churches. And I think the church is pretty satisfied as long as we're a little bit away from the world. You know, like if the world is here and we're a little bit further back, but the world keeps moving further and further and further away from the will of God and we just keep following them and we feel good because... Well, we're not quite as bad as they are, but we're a lot further away than we used to be 100 years ago, 200 years ago. The things that take place in the average independent Baptist church would make a liberal Methodist blush back in the 1800s. It really, it's, it's, we've let a lot of worldliness creep in. And I'm talking about my church, your church, all of our churches it has. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And of course, the devil is also our enemy. Uh, in Ephesians, the, the, the Apostle Paul wrote, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so if we could ever get to the place where we get a little bit of victory over our flesh and maybe we're not as influenced by the world. Satan will come after us and he'll attack us. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Listen, overconfidence, cockiness, pride, a lack of humility, they're all causes for abasement. Saul had to be humbled because he got cocky. Um, remember, Samuel said to him, when you were little in your own sight, um, was that thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. But what happened? He, he became big, too big for his britches and he became independent of God and he was given strict orders and he kind of picked and choose which orders he was going to follow. And that's what we do. We go through the book and we say we love the book and, and, but there's stuff we're picking and choosing what we want to obey because, well, the other guy over here does it and, and if he's getting away with it, it must be okay and we allow a lot of stuff to creep in. We're overconfident. The Bible says pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Don't underestimate the power of these enemies that are creeping in to your Christian life. And then thirdly, independence. Pride causes us to operate independently of God. Independence is a lack of dependence by definition which is a lack of faith. Faith is dependence. It's reliance. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when we lack dependence on God, lack faith in God, we're operating independently. And we're not operating in reliance upon Him. You know, if you study this passage of Scripture out, 
Joshua did not pray one time and ask God what to do about Ai. He didn't, he didn't get done with Jericho and say, okay, Ai's next, or we think Ai's yet at next. Maybe God wants us to go somewhere else. Maybe God's got another plan. Maybe God doesn't want us to go into Ai. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer. And I get it. Sometimes we get, you know, Les Roloff said the best place to pray for potatoes is on the end of a hoe handle. And I, I believe we need to be people of action as well. But listen, you are never too busy to pause and spend some time in prayer before especially you're about to spend, send 3,000 men into a battle that potentially you could lose. And so they don't spend any time in prayer. When you don't pray, you're operating independently from God. You're doing your thing in your wisdom and in your power rather than in God's wisdom, God's way, and in God's power. And I'm telling you, we do this all the time, especially with things that we've done before, things that we, quote, can do, things that we've seen success in before. They don't pray. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that if Joshua would have asked God what to do, do you think God would have told him, you're not ready. You got sin in the camp you need to deal with. You need to take care of it. I think God. I don't think God would have said, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you. Sin is in the camp. Even though, Joshua, you don't know about it. You didn't see it happen. I'm not going to tell you. But no, of course, Josh, God would have told Joshua about the sin of Achan. They would have got that fixed before they went into Ai. And 36 men would have had their lives spared. There would be 36 less widows in Israel. All because they didn't pray. How many decisions have you made lately that you didn't pray about? Why do we always wait until after disaster to pray? Look at chapter 7 and verse 6. After the disaster at Ai, and Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? He's He's blaming God. Why did, you, why did you bring us here? It's like, you know, the people with Moses, they did the same thing all the time. They, 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 they run into one obstacle. Would to God that we stayed back over there. We had it so good when we were slaves in Egypt. And, and hear the same thing. Why did you deliver us? Why did you bring us over this Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? You know, I don't really appreciate his prayer, but I do appreciate the fact that he's praying. Look at verse 9. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and environ us or surround us round and Cut off our name from the earth, and what will thou do unto thy great name? Listen, we need to pray before the disaster strikes, not just wait till the, the bottom falls out. Listen, what disaster is coming up in your life this week that perhaps could be avoided if you prayed about it? God wants us to pray. God wants us to pray without ceasing. The Bible says, be careful for nothing, but in Everything in prayer, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Man, we need to be spending a whole lot more time in prayer. You know, they, I, I think uh, the distractions of the world kind of keep us from praying. You know, like, um, you know, you read about, um, you know, Jonathan Edwards or, uh, or, uh, or the... Um, John Wesley, they say John Wesley spent three hours every day in prayer. He said unless he was very busy, and then he would spend four hours a day in prayer. He wanted to make sure that he got that extra hour in to help him to be more efficient in all the work that he had to do. Prayer, we need to spend time in prayer. But not just prayer and principles. We need to depend on God's principles. The Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And so when you're in the book, the book will keep you from sin. They, they failed because of this sin, this accursed thing, and, and, and the sin of independence and the sin of overconfidence. They, they, they were in the Bible. It would have kept them from all that. 
The Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And we need to uh, not be independent in the area of people. God gives you people. Gee, when he has a situation going on in his life, he'll call me. And I'm not his pastor. I'm sure he calls his pastor and talks to his pastor first. But if he's looking for advice or counsel, sometimes he'll call me, he'll call his dad. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Where no counsel is, the people fail. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they're established by wise counsel. Thou shalt make thy war. And in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Listen, we need to, we need to, we need to avail ourselves. And we need to stop acting independently. We need to stop being overconfident and boastful and prideful. And we certainly need to remove the sin from the camp. I said I'd give you one more. Here's the sin I think is plaguing our churches today. And possibly it could have been a problem for Israel as well. Here it is. You ready? It's indifference. Apathy. It's like nobody cares anymore. You know, the world is going nuts. And we don't even care. I mean, you see it on television and you're like, what can I do? And people who used to be faithful, three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, they're coming Sunday morning only. Eventually, they'll get hit or miss with that and eventually they'll be out of church altogether. It's just this apathy that seems to grow and develop. And I'm seeing it. We were just talking about it before the service at our church. Our church, you know, there are people that were rock solid in, they went soul, and they did, they were involved. And now it's like maybe I see them once a week, maybe I see them once every other week, but they're just slowly and gradually becoming more and more apathetic to the things of God. I, I talked to one of the ladies, we had a family fun night the other day, bonfire in the backyard of the property. And she was there. And I, I made it a point to, you know, because I, I know she's struggling. And, and, you know, I made it a point to go up and talk to her. I was talking to her and her husband for a while. And uh, we were talking about revival. And she said, I need revival. And, I, you know, I agreed with her, I, not about her, but about, I said, you know, I need revival. But she's one of the people that I've been praying for that has been gradually been slipping away. Used to come every Sunday night. Used to, used to, used to come every Wednesday night. Gradually, she's just been here Sunday morning. She's been a lot, missing a lot of Sunday morning. Sunday school, she's been missing a lot of, not getting up in time for Sunday school. And it would just be a really quick, easy step to get out altogether. And it's just apathy. It's indifference. And she's saved. There's no doubt about it. But she just doesn't care anymore. And it's a shame. And, and honestly, I mean, I, I feel like I need to stand on my head and do jumping jacks or, you know, get the purple lights or <laughs> something to entertain or whatever, and then I keep shaking myself and reminding myself, it's, if, if God cannot entertain people with his word, what in the world am I going to try to offer them from the world? It's just it, nothing. It's not going to survive. It's not going to last. And so I'm just going to stay the course and preach the book and, and, and keep doing what I know God's called me to do and just understand that in these days that we're living in, it's just, uh, it's just very, very difficult time for Christians. They're, they're fading fast. And I'm begging God. I mean, it all started up here, right? Isn't this where sinners in the hands of an angry God was? Well, what city was that preached in? Enfield. I thought it was Northfield. I came through Northfield. Enfield. Moody was from Northfield, right? Massachusetts. Where's Enfield? Is it anywhere near here? Oh, it's an hour from here. But Enfield, it all started right here, New England. Man, we need revival to sweep back through New England and then, you know, move its way back and belt the Bible with the Bible belt, belt the Bible belt with the Bible again. So listen, I'm done. What, what, what in a practical way can you do? You need to pray about everything, big and little. Consciously recognize and declare your dependence upon God. You need to make a declaration of dependence. God, I am dependent upon you for big things. I mean, if you were going to move your family to... You know, Florida. It seems like that's another problem we're having is everybody's moving to Florida. You know, Florida's going to be full of, uh, it's, it's going to be full of these people from the north and they're going to have high taxes pretty soon too. So, but before you would move your family, you would pray about that, right? That's a big decision. You know, 
Your, your daughter's going to get married. I mean, they would, they would pray about that's a big decision. Where you're going to go to college, where you're going to go to work, that's a big decision. We need to start praying not only about those decisions, we need to pray about the little decisions as well. Pray about everything. And then don't get cocky. Uh, the Bible says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Uh, get used to saying, but for the grace of God go I. I'm, you know, you hear the tragedies and you hear them all the time. Don't, you know, whisper and gossip to somebody else about it with a little snicker. Just say, but for the grace of God go I. It could happen to you. We got a family in our church really, really struggling right now. I mean, just really going through a rough time. I mean, on the, on the verge of divorce. And that could be me. I know it could be me. And that challenges me to become more dependent upon God for a stronger marriage. And uh, don't get cocky. And then keep yourself pure. Put up fences in your life. Surround yourself with people who will not let you sin. Accountability, that's always a good thing. If Achan had somebody that was godly alongside of him, when he even thought about taking that, ah, don't touch it. You know, what, you know what they throw in the fire? That's what they told us to do. Go get that gold, though. We can take that, throw it in the treasury, but leave that Babylonian garment there. We don't need that. And he would have saved his whole family. His whole family died as a result of that. All right, I'm done, brother. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord, and I thank you, God, for just the opportunity and the privilege to be here tonight. I'm thankful for this place, this church. I'm thankful for Brother Schott. And, Lord, I'm looking forward to getting to know him and his family, his church, uh, in a greater way. Uh, God, he's just, a, he's just a guy that I know I can connect with. He's the real deal. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a humble guy. God, I pray you'd help uh, him in this place. I pray you'd help these people. God, I pray that you would just work in this place, in this church. I pray, God, that if there's anything brewing, even in the slightest way, in anybody's heart, God, I pray that before tragedy strikes, that they would confess it, repent of it, get it right. Uh, they don't have to confess it to the whole world. They just got to get it right for you, between you and them. And God, I just pray you'd help and bless these people. I pray none of us would become independent of, of you. I pray none of us would get overconfident where we think we can do life on our own without you. And I pray, God, probably most of all, that you would help us to stop being indifferent. God, there was a time we cared greatly about the things of God. We cared greatly about people being saved, about people's lives being right with God. We cared greatly about what was going on down at the local church. And we thought about it, and we, we planned for it, we prepared for it, and we're, we just are becoming more and more apathetic, more and more indifferent. And I pray you'd help us to repent of that sin as well. And God, we're so thankful for all that you've done. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for using me. I'm thankful for uh, Brother Wiedemeyer and the influence he had in my life. And God, we just pray you continue to keep your hand of blessing upon all of us. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.